This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line. I'm glad you're here. I'm John Bradshaw. With me is Eric Flickinger, likewise from It Is Written. And we're here to answer your Bible questions. That's what we do on Line Upon Line. We go to the Word of God and do our very best to find in the Word of God an answer to the questions that are burning in your mind. Now, if you have a question that you'd like to get to us, email it to us, would you? Our email address is lineuponline at iiw.org. Org. Line upon line at IIW.org. So, first question comes from Chen. And the first question today, Eric, you ready for this? Ready. Here it is. What is the church and its purpose or mission? There's probably about half a dozen different ways we could go here. So, let's try and be as broad as we can. There are. So, first of all, let's, is there a church? Does the church exist? Some people think, is it a a, a corporate body? Is it just people in general? What, how does it all fit together? We'll start with the writings of Paul. Uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 15 this. He says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we know that the church exists and it is called, Paul says, the pillar and ground of the truth. It is the repository of the truth from which it should be spread around the world. In order for that to happen, it, there's got to be some sort of a structure. Yeah, yeah. Jesus said, uh, he spoke to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, speaking of himself, not Peter, I will build my church. When you hear people talking about this, and it's sometimes debated, they'll say, you know, but the church isn't the building. Mm. It's the people. Which is right, but the church is more than just a philosophy. Yes. It's, well, we can, we can talk about this. Was the church in the Old Testament organized? What did it look like? The church in the Old Testament was absolutely organized. I mean, you had a sanctuary, you had a sacrificial service, you had priests, you had, and God organized and, and set this whole thing in motion. It wasn't just something that just sort of spontaneously occurred. New Testament, what did it look like there? You have Jesus, you have his 12 apostles, you have others beyond that who went out and they shared the gospel. Then they came back and told what happened. Then they went out again. They established congregations. They wrote letters. Paul wrote letters back and forth to them, encouraging them, correcting them. It wasn't, uh, again, just this spontaneous thing it was very well organized. It was organized. There were deacons and elders. There, were, uh, uh, there was charitable stuff going on, ministering to people's needs. Uh, they met in certain locations. Uh, it was referred in one place, Colossians 4 and verse 18, to the church that is in his house. Might we say that perhaps more perfectly understood, the church is body of believers yes. that gathers together uh, physically and is joined together Sure. In fact, even Paul talks about that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 24. He refers to the church as Christ's body. And really the purpose of the church is to take the gospel to all the world. With no church, the gospel doesn't just sort of occur everywhere. 
uh, there needs to be some sort of structure in order to bring that to pass. And God knew that. That's why he instituted it that It way. seems to me this is one of these questions that you could, you could make a case for the church being one thing or the other or the other, but I don't know why you would. I think you'd just say, well, there are church buildings and the church is the, the, the body of believers. God has called out, the word ecclesia, meaning the, the called out ones. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians 5.25 that Jesus died for the church. And so we expect that, uh, or rather we believe that, we appreciate that, and we're glad for that. So again, this is a subject that you want to study to try to understand more fully God's purposes, but there's not a lot of point generating heat when all that ought to be generated, and this one is light. Thanks for the question, Shane, really appreciate it. Eric, what do we have next? We have another question. This one comes from Manny, and Manny says, could you please explain Colossians 2, verse 16? Does it mean that the Sabbath does not exist anymore because verse 17 says that it's a shadow of things to pass. So Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Okay, let's take a look at this. Colossians is a short book, only four chapters. In Colossians chapter 2, we'll start a little bit before verse 14. I'll read from the King James. If the New King James reads any differently, then you can shine a little light on that. Colossians 2, verse 14, the question is regarding the existence of, of the Sabbath. Correct. All right. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Verse 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Frankly, it doesn't say much about the Sabbath other than to say, don't let anybody judge you when it comes to the Sabbath days. But what Sabbath days are being spoken of? The Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. What kind of Sabbaths do we have in the Bible? There's a couple of different types of Sabbaths. The one would be the weekly Sabbath. It occurs every week from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But beyond that, you also have a number of annual Sabbaths that would occur once a year. You've probably heard of some of them, Yom Kippur, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets, and things along those lines. So those were annual Sabbaths, and each of them occurred on a specific date each year, whereas the weekly Sabbath occurs on a day every week. Things like the Passover and Pentecost were Sabbaths, yes. meaning they were very holy days, and they were to be treated with all of the sanctity that uh, a weekly Sabbath would be treated in. Mm -hmm. So it seems here in this passage that, that, that one of them is a shadow, yes. or one of those are a shadow. I'm not quite sure I should word that. So which Sabbaths are shadows? The weekly Sabbath or the annual Sabbaths? How do we go about establishing that? Here it says there are a shadow of things to come. These Sabbaths that are being discussed here by Paul are pointing forward to an event in the future, whereas the other Sabbath points back to an event in the past. The weekly Sabbath is a memorial of creation. God established it all the way back at the end of creation week. And so each week when the Sabbath comes around to us, we get to reflect on that act of creation. Whereas the annual Sabbaths are pointing forward to Christ. If you wanted to do this, I'd recommend you do. Start in Colossians 1 verse 1 and start reading on from there. By the time you get to the middle or late middle of Colossians chapter two, you've got it figured out. Colossians two makes it really clear. 
speaking of Jesus, it says in verse three, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, you read on where he says in verse six, as you have received, therefore Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In verse eight, beware lest anyone spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Verse nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The message in Colossians is that Jesus is enough. Does not mean Jesus is enough, so therefore you don't obey God. Jesus is enough, so therefore he has taken away from you the gift of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a good thing. Jesus is enough, so don't be adding other stuff to Jesus when it comes to your faith in him and salvation. The battle that Paul fought with the, with people in several places, you read about this in Colossians, you read about this in Ephesians, uh, others as well, were people who were wanting to superimpose upon Christianity Jewish rites, Jewish principles. Well, didn't the Jews keep the seventh day Sabbath? Of course they did. And they also kept honor your father and your mother, and they also kept thou shalt not steal, and so on. But what they did was they observed the annual Sabbaths. And you had people who were wanting to say to Christians, hey, if you want to be a real believer, you've got to keep these annual Sabbaths. Right. And in Colossians, like no other book, Paul walks through it and he says, you don't be needing to, to follow the traditions of men, the rudiments of the world. By the time Jesus had died and gone to heaven, Passover was no longer a mandate from God. It was a tradition of man. Same as Pentecost, same as the Day of Atonement, and on and on. So the message in Colossians chapter 2 isn't that the seven-day Sabbath is gone. It is that the annual Sabbaths now no longer need to be kept. In fact, why would you keep the Passover when the Bible says that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us? It would be a denial of the sacrifice of Jesus. Seven-day Sabbath, or you want to go right on with that, and no other gods before me, and uh, honor your father and your mother, and thou shalt not covet. No question, the Ten Commandments are still part of God's will for the lives of his children today. Good question. Thank you. We've got another question. This one comes from Chuck. And Chuck says, I see the role that the Catholic Church plays in Bible prophecy, but I hear a lot of people uh, condemning Catholics. Is that right? Okay, what role does the Roman Church play in Bible prophecy? Well, if you go back and you look at some of the Reformers, the Reformers were very clear that the Church of Rome is implicated in Revelation chapter 13 as a power that will do vast amount of spiritual damage in the end of time. And uh, if, if that sounds challenging, well, boy, oh boy, it certainly is. You look back in the Middle Ages and the Roman Church did a vast amount of damage then responsible for the deaths of, frankly, millions of people. And here in our day, the Church of Rome still says, come to us and we can give you an indulgence. That would be time off your suffering in purgatory, which incidentally doesn't exist. There's no purgatory. The Church of Rome says you can come to us for forgiveness of sin. Now, of course, what they'll say is God forgives. We just ratify the decision. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. And the Roman church does not teach the truth of the gospel, simply doesn't. They, you can't get away from the fact that Rome says salvation ultimately comes through the church and grace is received through the sacraments. Unbiblical. Some of these teachings of the Roman church, and let me say that some of these teachings of all churches, because the problems of all people, the weaknesses of all people and belief systems are pointed out somewhere in the word of God. So, 
Some people conscientiously disagree with the teachings of various churches. Should that mean, does that mean folks should be mean? We should not condemn people. There's a big difference between a church and the people who are in that church. Uh, God loves people. Mm -hmm. uh, some people are nicer than others. Some are smarter than others. Some are more well-informed than others. Most people are sincere to some extent or another. God wants to save everybody. Now, the only way, the best way, I guess I should say, to save people is to share the truth with them in love. So coming down like a ton of bricks on top of somebody is usually not the best way to share a message of truth with them. Uh, we want to share that truth in love. God has a lot of people, uh, his people, who are in the Catholic Church right now. And his desire is that they would come to know the truth and, uh, and ultimately choose to follow him. So if you find something in somebody else that you say, that's not biblical, that's not good, uh, that's outside the will of God. Well, okay, well done, that's fine. But what's more crucial is that you look within yourself and find what's in your life that shouldn't be there. Mm. And everybody has that, whether it's unkindness or error, untruth, un, un, unchristlike spirit, whatever it is. Ask God to do the work in you, make that far more important to you than what you wanna do in somebody else. Thanks for joining us today on Line Upon Line. We'll have more questions in just a moment. To get your questions to us, email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll be right back. I'm in the Bahamas. It's a slice of paradise, really. And as beautiful as it is, it's a place with a colorful past. Once upon a time, the Bahamas was a haven for pirates. Blackbeard sailed these waters. Pirates lived or live outside the law. They are lawless. And the fact is, they were thieves, murderers. This isn't a game. We still see lawlessness today. The battle is real. Undoubtedly, you've experienced it. You might be caught in the middle of it now. Can you see yourself in that picture? doing the things that you know you should not. See yourself in that picture? You want a way out of lawlessness? You want a way out of slavery to the old life? Jesus is that way. Lawless. Watch now on It Is Written TV. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500 Nine programs produced by It Is Written taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw, joined by Eric Flickinger from It Is Written. We answer your Bible questions on Line Upon Line. And here's another. 
It comes from Hope, who asks, Is it written in the Bible whether or not we are to be buried or cremated, and does it matter? Hope, that's a great question. The Bible uh, gives you plenty to chew on uh, in finding an answer for that question. Where do we begin? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is probably one of the better places to begin in finding the answer to this question. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 55, we find what happens when a person dies. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? So that's what happens when we die and what's going to happen when we are resurrected. What's interesting is in the very same chapter, Paul has something else to say. We take a look back at verse number 35. He says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive until it dies, and what you sow you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. We're going to skip down just a few verses to verse 40. He says there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, in other words, heavenly bodies or perfected bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So let's just summarize what Paul has said here. He says, we have a natural body now, a terrestrial body, we are going to die, and then we'll be raised a celestial or a perfected body. So is God going to raise the same body made of the same stuff out of the grave as the body that went in? The answer clearly is no. It's going to be a different body. I'm glad. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I oh, know yeah. a lot of people are. I'm glad. Less aches. We won't come out with the same aches the same limitations, the same flaws, new body. That's right. So, so what happens to a person when they die, when I die, when you die? If Jesus doesn't come back and we're not caught up to meet him in the clouds without seeing death, what happens to us? We're going to die and ultimately we're going to go back to what we were before God created us and that is dust. So a lot of people worry, what happens if I get cremated? If I get turned into ashes, is God going to be able to put me back together again. I'll tell you this, we were in a church in Rome, and it was this church, it's the um, Capuchin Monastery, and in the crypt, uh, kind of beside, beneath, below, I don't know, there's this crypt area, you know, full of bones. And uh, while we were walking through there, there was a a tour guide, an American fellow, and he brought through a large tour group, and he said to them, well, you know, they had to bury him back then because the belief was he couldn't be cremated Because, of course, if you're cremated, then God won't be able to put the pieces back together. That does somewhat limit God's abilities. Doesn't it just? I think this is why questions like this 
sometimes take people like you and me a little bit mm. by surprise, maybe a lot of people by surprise, because if, if you're familiar with the God of the Bible, you know that it, it's nothing for God to call somebody back to life. He spoke a universe into existence. This is not a challenge for God to hear somebody say, can't be cremated because God can't put the pieces back together. What does God do with folks who are burned to death or, or buried at sea mm. or, or some such thing? After being in the grave for a certain period of time, you're in pretty well the same condition as somebody who was cremated. That's right. You're just getting to dust a little bit faster. You're accelerating the process, if you will. So the good news is God gives you a new body, whatever happens, buried, cremated. Be nice to your kids because they're probably going to decide. Many people just do what's cheapest. Different cultures do different things. It's all about simply disposing of a body in a way that's mm, hygienic and, and so forth. When Jesus comes back, new bodies, whether you've been cremated or buried, makes no difference to God. It all works out in the end. We got a question here from Melanie now. What is Melanie asking? Melanie wants to know, why is the bear in Daniel 7 raised up or higher on one side? Oh, so we go to the prophecies of Daniel. We are. In Daniel chapter 7, you got several different animals and they represent kingdoms. So we'll go to Daniel 7. It sounds like you're there pretty much. And Eric will read about the bear. And the Bible tells us it's right. It, interesting. Not only is it raised up on one side, but it has three ribs in its mouth. Read it that does. Part. This is in Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 5. It says, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So here we have this description of a bear raised up on one side and three ribs in its mouth. You're going to find that the kingdoms in the book of Daniel that play significant roles in prophecy are mentioned several times in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 8, and again in Daniel chapter 11. And each time God identifies these kingdoms, he uses different symbols but he gives additional information to help us know that we have the correct identification. So back in Daniel chapter 2, he uses a multi-metaled man. And if you studied that, you know that the head of gold represents the kingdom of Babylon. Chest and arms of silver is Medo-Persia. Belly and thighs of, of brass or bronze is Greece. Legs of iron are Rome. So Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Here we are in Daniel chapter 7. And he says that there's going to be a, a lion-like beast. Then he says there's going to be a bear-like beast, then a leopard-like beast, and then a sort of a composite dragon beast. So the bear here, raised up on one side, represents Medo-Persia. And we know that because in Daniel 2, you've got the four. Daniel 7, you've got the four. They parallel. Mm -hmm. So that means that the lion, that's Babylon. Uh, the leopard would represent? That would be Greece. All right, all right. And then that composite thing, dragon beast, that's Rome. Rome okay. So the second beast is Medo-Persia. Why is it raised up on one side? Well, the Medes and Persians were two people groups that worked together, but one ended up being a little stronger than the other and winning out over the, over the other. And so that was the Persians. So you have the Persians eventually eclipsing the Medes in power and strength. And there, there, then there's those three ribs in its mouth. When Medo-Persia came to power, it took over everything that Babylon had, the three provinces that were devoured, if you will, were Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. So each time God pictures these kingdoms, he gives us just a little bit more information to let us know we're on the right track. Excellent. We've got time for 
More questions, and here's a good question. I like this question very much. It comes from Grace. And Grace asks this question because she says she read the It Is Written Bible study about death. Good for her. Mm -hmm. If when we die, we are asleep in our graves waiting for the resurrection, where is our spirit slash soul? Great question, Grace. Eric, where do you suggest we begin? Well, we should probably begin back at the beginning with how God created man to begin with. And when you take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 7, it says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became, this is from the New King James, a living being. But the King James says, a living soul. Right. So a soul being what you are, not what you have. Revelation chapter 16, verse 3 tells you that every living soul died in the sea. And in Acts chapter 27, 37, there were 276 souls in a boat. So this is really clear. A soul is a person. It's like Auntie Ethel. You remember Auntie Ethel? She was a dear old soul, wasn't she? You don't mean she was a ghost, even though aunts can be frightening sometimes. She was simply a a being. Auntie Ethel was a dear old soul, a, a lovely person, a kind human being, the combination of body and breath. That's what the Bible's getting at. Yep. So what happens to the living being when a person dies? Well, what, hap- what happens with the process of death? The, the breath of God is removed. That's what made us alive to begin with. We were dust. He breathed into us the breath of life, and we became a living being or a living soul. When we die, that breath returns to God who gave it, and we return to dust. So what happens to the living being? What happens to me? What happens to you at death? Well, I, John, you, when we die, we cease to be us. So that soul simply ceases to be until something significant happens. The body goes to the grave. The breath goes where? Goes out. But the Bible says that the spirit, the breath goes back to God who gave it, meaning that life spark, the power to keep you alive, that's resident with God. There's no need to overcomplicate what's really a pretty simple thing. We were created, combination of body and breath. At death, those two combinations, well, it's one combination. At death, that combination kind of goes its separate way. So the body goes to the dust and the, the breath, the spirit, the life spark, that's resident with God. You know what the Word of God says? It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, starting in verse 16, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's clear. And I tell you what, this answers so many questions. People have so many questions about what happens when you die. And the Bible answers those questions clearly. He says something very similar in, uh, in his writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, means die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So when Jesus comes back, that life spark is given back to us and we come up, but with brand new bodies. A living soul ceases to be at death, body in the ground, the spirit The breath, the breath goes back to God. He holds the power that he will put back in your newly created body at the time of the resurrection. I'm glad the Bible makes wonderful truth so profoundly clear. Thanks for joining us today. That's all we've got time for. 
Hope you'll join us again next time and get your question to us by emailing us at lineuponline at iiw.org. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. We're from It Is Written. We'll see you next time. God bless you.